When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-size companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. Live from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. Middle-income families need help. Uh, We're coming out of COVID-19. We want to keep our economy strong. When you have an infrastructure bill, there's spinoffs of that. There's spinoffs in cities and towns all across America. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective from D.C.'s top names. We need to incentivize the manufacturing of chips in America. I do believe the vaccine is safe and effective. I think what government's role is is to share the science, share the facts. Share the benefits. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Live from Washington, where Bloomberg Radio is not on recess, even after the Senate adjourned following the all-night voterama. And as the next governor of New York meets the press today, we'll be joined in a moment by Congresswoman Yvette Clark, Democrat from New York, to talk about the next steps for infrastructure spending and the future for Kathy Hochul. Later, we'll talk with the crypto congressman, Warren Davidson, Republican from Ohio, about amending the crypto tax language in the bipartisan bill. And we'll get analysis from the panel. Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Sheehan Zeno and Rick Davis will be with us. And we turn to the future of politics in New York after the resignation of Governor Andrew Cuomo, at least his announcement yesterday. He won't leave for another couple of weeks, but his replacement, Lieutenant Governor Kathy Hochul, is not waiting. She held her first news conference a short time ago today, and was quick to show a sense of humor. She walked up to the podium, and the mics didn't work. It sounds like there's an audio problem. What a great start. Can you hear me now? Yes. Sounds we, like a commercial. Can you hear me now? No, we got you. All right, all right. Let's get it going. Good afternoon, and thank you for being here. And that's how it began. And all of us who talk in the microphones every day send our empathy to Albany. Kathy Hochul went straight for Governor Cuomo when she began speaking. Regarding his decision to step down, I believe it is appropriate and in the best interest of the state of New York. And while it was not expected, it is a day for which I am prepared. We're joined now by Congresswoman Yvette Clark, Democrat from New York, as promised. Congresswoman, welcome back to Bloomberg Radio. Do you believe Kathy Hochul is prepared? I definitely believe that Kathy Hochul is prepared, and I'm really uh, pleased that, uh, you know, it was serendipity that she was actually the lieutenant governor uh, that would succeed this governor. I had an opportunity to serve with Kathy in the New York, excuse me, in the New York delegation in in the United States Congress. Uh, And she's a very determined woman uh, to get things done on behalf of the people of New York State. So I'm I'm. Uh, one who is encouraged uh, by her ascension to the governorship. 
Well, we spent a lot of time talking around this, Congresswoman. I just wonder about the, the policy. Will she bring anything different to New York politics? And I ask you that because her policies obviously align with Andrew Cuomo's. Well, I think it's approach. It's it's uh, she's a people person, uh, as has been noted. Uh, she has traveled uh, the length and breadth of of the state, meeting at the local level. I know she's come to my community on a number of occasions, uh, and I think that many people can speak to her her genuine interest in what is happening on the ground. And I I think that's what this state needs in this moment, uh, particularly as we battle against the COVID-19 Delta variant. So, um, again, I think it's all about approach uh, and effectiveness. You know, I think that Kathy uh, will seek uh, counsel among her colleagues um, and then make the best determinations once she's uh, listened to uh, the, the various concerns of the people of the state of New York. And, and that's, I think, a departure from what uh, most uh, New Yorkers have, um, you know, have witnessed and have uh, experienced with uh, Governor Cuomo. Well, Congresswoman, you walked us there. Uh, starting this job in the middle of a pandemic is uh, a tough spot. The whole country was stopping a year ago, as we discussed yesterday, to watch the daily briefings from Andrew Cuomo. He became closely associated with the fight against COVID. Of course, a lot of things happened since then. But what will it mean for Kathy Hochul and her administration in terms of maintaining a a seamless response to the virus? Well, you know, I think that, again, uh, the the governor's resignation was a surprise uh, to everyone uh, in terms of timing. I think it was a matter of time, but I think that the timing of it uh, was something that no one could predict. The great thing about it is that uh, Kathy has been traveling across the state. Uh, It's not as though she's unfamiliar with uh, what has taken place and, and what hasn't taken place. And so I think that uh, that enables her to really hit the ground running. Uh, There are a number of uh, concerns that I think all New Yorkers have uh, with with the uh, resurgence of the the, uh, Delta variant uh, that we're all going to have to work with her to address. She's not doing this by herself. Uh, She's going to have a lot of support from the state legislature as well as uh, congressional colleagues. Uh, and and our local and municipal leadership. And so I I really believe that she's already demonstrated as a lieutenant governor what it takes to have the pulse of the people um, and to to then take action uh, based on uh, her observations and the uh, intelligence that she'll gather from those around her. Do you think that there should be an ongoing investigation uh, beyond Governor Cuomo's resignation into the way deaths were recorded at nursing homes because of COVID. This was obviously a major controversy. Does that investigation end with him stepping down or or should that proceed? I think it should proceed. We want to make sure that we, uh, you know, we don't uh, revisit um, practices of the past. And we, we need to know what took place in order to avert that in the future. So, you know, a, a transparency is always, uh, I think, best in, in governance. Mm-hmm. And to the extent that we can get to the bottom of exactly what took place, uh, I think it, it will bode well for, for all New Yorkers. Congresswoman, before the allegations against Andrew Cuomo emerged, did you have a good working relationship with the governor? 
I had a relationship that was somewhat remote. I, I guess uh, very similar to to Kathy Hochul. I I never served in the state legislature, and I recognize that a lot of my colleagues that did serve in the state legislature uh, had a, a, a I guess a more familiar uh, relationship with him. Um, certainly during the outbreak of of COVID, the his office reached out to. Uh, have us identify some uh, testing sites, uh, but uh, you know, to to the to the extent where uh, there was collaboration, that that was uh, those opportunities were very few and far between. Yeah, we're speaking with Congresswoman Yvette Clark, Democrat from New York, and I'd like to ask you about infrastructure since that is the biggest story of the moment in Washington. Will you vote to support the bipartisan infrastructure plan passed in the Senate? And I ask you that as chair on the subcommittee on cybersecurity, infrastructure protection and innovation. It's a it's a pretty good uh, point on your resume to talk about the, the recent Senate infrastructure plan and the language of innovation from the White House's initial proposal that was eliminated from the bill. Would you try to put that back in? Absolutely. I think that, you know, we really have to uh, go into the, into the details of the the BIF, as it's affectionately called on the Hill, that bipartisan infrastructure plan. Um, and, and then, you know, I am standing very firmly with uh, Speaker Pelosi in that uh, this must come with the full um, menu of of of, of programmatic uh, and policy decisions that the, uh, the the president has requested that that includes our reconciliation bill. Uh, once I have a, a fuller um, uh, uh, understanding of everything that's in that in the uh, the, the Senate bill, uh, I'll be able to make an informed decision about what uh, either needs to be added or whether, in fact, I can just. Uh, I feel confident that it will meet the needs of the American people. Right now, uh, that remains to be seen. Just so we're all following here, because I love the the wonky jargon. It's BIP. We call it the BIP, Congresswoman. Do I call it the BIP? The BIF. B uh, the, B I F. It's the bi the bipartisan infrastructure plan. Okay, so in I F for infra, so it's like BIF, like Back to the Future. For infrastructure, I got it. right? Okay. Exactly. Now, with regard to this, uh, to the to the reconciliation plan, three and a half trillion dollars. Chuck Schumer said today that some of his members think it's too expensive. Others think it doesn't go far enough. Which category would you fit in? I think it doesn't go far enough. We are in the middle of so many crises in this nation, and it's time for us to turn the page on uh, what I consider to be uh, dwelling in the 20th century. Uh, we've got a, a real uh, threat with uh, with climate change right now. Uh, if we don't do everything in our power, uh, you know, this this uh, crisis we're in will only loom larger. Uh, that that's just one element of this. Uh, you know, the the healthcare infrastructure. We, we, we're still battling a pandemic that that started almost two years ago, um, and and is only picking up in its in its uh, veracity. And so, I believe that uh, we need to make these investments. They're once in a generation investments to make sure that we are poised. And, and, and prepared to meet the demands of the 21st century. And that uh, $3 trillion, uh, you know, it, it, it's only a down payment in what I believe uh, is going to be needed for us to really advance our, our civil society.
We only have a minute left, uh, Congresswoman. I'd like to ask you about climate change because that's been a big priority for you. Many in uh, your Democratic caucus in the House think there's not enough in the Senate bill. Will you make up for that in reconciliation to tackle climate change in New York and around the country? Absolutely. Absolutely. New Yorkers, particularly those of us from New York City, uh, after Superstorm Sandy, recognize that we are quite vulnerable. Uh, you know, the, the, the city of New York, with the, exen- with the exception of the Bronx, are uh, a network of islands. And with sea level rise and uh, the frequency of storms that are taking place in the Atlantic, uh, we have got to do everything we can to join the fight uh, to protect ourselves against the changing climate. And, and that means that we've got to cut down on carbon emissions. That's going to take a retrofitting. It's going to take building out new mm-hmm. facilities uh, to electrify um, our environment uh, using renewables and and a whole host of other new technologies, right. so that um, you know we can we can survive this and that our generations that will uh, proceed that will succeed us uh, will not inherit uh, this uh, horrific uh, dynamic that that we're all facing. Congresswoman Yvette Clark, Democrat from New York, thanks for being with us here on Sound On. Coming up, we'll mix it up with the panel. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Senators may be on recess, but they did pull an all-nighter before they left. It's as if we uh, caught a pass, a nice long pass at midfield, but we still have 50 yards to go before we score a touchdown. And that's the part everybody seems to forget. It's only halfway done. There's this other place called The House. We just talked about it with Congresswoman Clark. Let's bring in the panel. Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Sheehan Zeno and Rick Davis are here. Jeannie, how different will the infrastructure bill look once it gets through the House, assuming it gets through the House? And I ask you that after Votorama kept these guys and gals up till 4 o'clock in the morning, and we saw some some chinks in the armor for Democrats and certainly a lot of Republicans eager to embarrass them. That's right. And, you know, for political geeks like myself, it was so fun to watch. And, I you know, didn't stay up. <laughs> I died as much as I could. And of course, you know, besides Election Day, these are the days we love. Um, and it was quite a night, uh, you know, amendment after amendment after amendment going through. How different will the bill look? Of course, you know, if we're talking the BIF, as you were just talking with the Congresswoman about, um, it's going to look different once it goes through the House. I don't 
think it will look that much different. However, um, obviously, as we talk about reconciliation, that could look a good, I mean, we don't even know what it looks like now, <laughs> but it could look a good deal different based on this outline once it gets through the Senate and, and, and clears the House, if it does, as you said. We've seen a lot of infighting amongst Democrats just in the last 24, 48 hours, mm -hmm. particularly in the House. They will all want to have their say in what is in this bill. And as we talked about yesterday, a lot of it depends on their constituents. You know, where, you know, I am, you talk New Jersey, New York, that salt is going to be a big deal for those representatives. Elsewhere around the country, they have other issues that they are going to demand. And those things will impact what the final bill looks like if there is one. Yep, SALT, the, which we talked about quite a bit yesterday, the federal deduction uh, for state and local taxes. Jeannie, do you think the House will strike all of those amendments from last night? They're non-binding, but they could get rid of them if they want. Yeah, I, I think many of those will go, you know, part of the, uh, you know, kind of craziness of what happens at a night like a Voterama is so much of that is so the party that's in the minority can hold the majority party accountable and make them vote on things. And of course, I think one of the great moments last night was Cory Booker and the mm -hmm. Democrats embracing the call from Republicans on defunding the police. But yeah. a lot of that is sort of the theatrics of the thing, and much of that will not make it in a final bill. Well, Rick Davis, let's talk a little bit about Votorama. As I read uh, on the terminal, Senate all-nighter reveals cracks among Democrats. Joe Manchin voted with Republicans in opposing funding to promote critical race theory. Senator Sinema voted with Republicans to shield family businesses from inheritance taxes. Mark Kelly broke ranks, voting to limit tax credits for electric vehicles. Is this the beginning of the end for the, the feel-good moment for Democrats? Well, I think we got to be totally clear. You know, we know the BIF is the bipartisan infrastructure plan. Well, last night was the DIF, Democrat-only infrastructure plan. And, and so, yeah, there were, uh, there were a lot of dissensions, and, and the Republicans put the Democrats on the spot. I mean, 50-plus uh, amendments offered, you know, that got them all the way to 4 o'clock in the morning. And I would say— Underlying all that, there was a targeted effort by Republicans in the Senate to put on the spot four senators who are up for re-election this cycle, it's Kelly, Warnock, Hassan, and, and Cortez Mastro. And they were put over and over and over through the grinder, forced to make votes that were going to look bad for them in the election cycle. And so a lot of those amendments were designed to do just that. And and Republicans were out crowing this morning. Here's a bill that they 100% of the Republicans in the Senate opposed, and yet they felt like what they got done in the amendment process was enough to maybe take back the Senate in two years. And so that was the Republican game last night. They felt they were successful. Democrats got a $3.5 trillion bill to play with. But I would say one thing. Um, there was no wraparound amendment, which is a way that bills get sent from one house to the other, the Senate chamber to the House in this regard. And without that wraparound amendment, it is almost impossible for the House to take out all these amendments that were passed into the bill last night. So they can add, but they can't subtract. How many Votoramas did you live through? <laughs> all the gray hairs I have on my head, each one is a Votorama. Well, I tell you, I guess I should have known it was the Biff. Hello? Hello? Anybody home? Hey, think I apologize for that. Obviously, this is something everybody knew.
as we spend time with Rick and Jeannie, uh, talk to us, uh, Jeannie, about reconciliation specifically. It's it's really nothing but blanks right now. And we know that Joe Manchin, we know Kirsten Cinema don't like that three-handle, the $3.5 trillion. What's that going to end up looking like? Jen Psaki was asked today if it's more like $2 trillion. She didn't want to answer. Yeah, and, and, and rightly so. Um, I don't think we know what it's going to end up looking like. We do know that people like Kristen Sinema and Joe Manchin have the power, as do any of the other Democrats in the Senate, to push back on the size of this bill. And, and of course, we heard today that they are uncomfortable. I would say one thing. Joe Manchin has long talks about being uncomfortable. It, I'm not sure at this point he votes against it in the end. You know, I think it's going to depend an awful lot how this looks. But let's not forget what they've done. I mean, if you think about your own household way of running your budget, it's a heck of a way to make a budget, right? To say, we're going to do all these things and then we're going to fund it in the aftermath. So it, it's going to be fascinating to watch the specifics here. Rick and Jeannie will be back coming up. We lean into the infrastructure debate with the crypto congressman, Representative Warren Davidson, Republican from Ohio. You know where we're going on this. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. So the bipartisan infrastructure bill that passed the Senate, which we now call BIF, apparently, had to keep the language the same when it came to reporting for taxes on crypto. They never got to agree on any of the amendments that narrowed the language to define what a broker is and maybe protect some of the other players like miners and software companies. We're going to talk about that because the House will have a chance to change that language coming up with Congressman Warren Davidson, Republican from Ohio. And welcome to Sound On for Wednesday. As the infrastructure bill heads from the Senate to the House, raising a lot of questions about what kind of changes might be made to the bill. And we're joined by Congressman Warren Davidson, Republican from Ohio. Congressman, welcome back. You've become known as the crypto congressman. And I'd like to start there. I wonder if you plan to change or or make an effort to change the tax reporting language around cryptocurrency that caused so much controversy in the Senate. Well, certainly. And right now, we don't know whether Speaker Pelosi will allow us to even offer amendments to this bill. And it's not even clear that we're going to get a clean vote on the infrastructure bill, bill versus bundling it with the $3.5 trillion spending package. So all in, you're looking at $4.7, and, uh, $4.7 trillion in spending. Uh, so we don't know what the process is going to be like in the House. But it looks like the week of the 23rd, the House is headed back to D.C. to deal with whatever the Senate has sent our way by then. Maybe I should have started with condolences that your recess is being cut short. Is that the right thing to do? Well, look, uh, it, you know, there are people that we would end up having to cancel uh, that kind of work to schedule things here in August. Uh, so we have a very full schedule, been going all over the place, uh, hearing from folks. One of the big concerns in the district is inflation and the amount of spending that's going on. How are we going to pay for this? Uh, and look, the, the damage to the dollar is part of why crypto is just taking off. People are concerned about how how much destruction is doing uh, is happening to the dollar, and they're putting their 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 savings and investments into other other assets. Crypto has certainly outperformed, you know, broadly uh, over the past decade. Bitcoin in particular, and the damage that could be done to this. We've tried for four years now to get regulatory clarity on cryptocurrencies. You know, people that are legitimate players in this space want some regulatory clarity. They don't want regulatory destruction, uh, and they don't want regulatory uncertainty 
Uh, we've had, you know, regulation by enforcement, which creates a lot of uncertainty now. But bad language in this bill by the Senate is going to create a lot of regulatory uncertainty. And to the extent there is certainty, I mean, the, the direct language, in spite of the speeches on the floor in the Senate, would treat virtually anyone that touches crypto as a broker. And if you think about it, if, if the bank was treated this way, uh, banks who handle cash would be treated like brokers. Uh, the teller at the bank would be a broker. Somebody that drives the safe deposit truck uh, to and from the bank would be a broker. I mean, that's the effect of how bad the language is in the Senate's bill. Uh, so absolutely, that'll be one of the amendments we offer if we get a chance to offer amendments. We're talking with Congressman Warren Davidson, Republican from Ohio, known to some as the crypto congressman. But I'd like to ask you about a little bit more than crypto, uh, Congressman. When you look at the hard infrastructure in the bipartisan bill that was passed by the Senate, is the money going to the right places? Are you getting enough for Ohio's 8th Congressional District to fix roads, bridges, and tunnels, the stuff that actually started this whole conversation? Well, the disappointing thing is, just at the math level, this is got $110 billion worth of funding for traditional infrastructure. Um, and the budget score says that it's going to get, it's going to increase the debt by $250 billion. Now, who would negotiate a deal where you get $110, $110 billion benefit that costs $250 billion? The whole package was $1.2 trillion. And look, uh, aside from just the, the the policy language, the language and terms and conditions for the money, just you have a math problem at the basic level. There's all kinds of stuff that I consider toxic policy that would potentially be deal breakers for me, uh, even if the math worked. Understood. Uh, so, when it comes so to the allotment, big... though, for, for roads, bridges, tunnels, just to, to, to clarify, does the 8th District get what it needs? Are you served to fix the hard infrastructure in your district that you want to see repaired? No, I, I think that's one of the other disappointing things. In spite of this giant number, uh, one of the biggest needs in southwest Ohio is the Brent Spence Bridge. It goes across the Ohio River between Cincinnati and northern Kentucky. And there's not a, a, a clear answer that this is going to fully deal with a, a bridge there. And if there's a, if there's a true role for federal infrastructure, uh, here you've got a bridge that goes between Ohio and Kentucky over one of our biggest navigable waterways, the Ohio River, uh, and uh, 3.5% of GDP goes over. You get two major interstate highways that come together right through there, uh, connects the uh, Cincinnati, Covington, uh, Kentucky, uh, Northern Kentucky Airport there. Uh, there, there uh, is a clear need for that infrastructure project, um, but it's not clear that that funding would be able to be done because of the level of support from the state of Kentucky and the state of Ohio. Does so, that mean, Congressman, uh, that you're a no vote on the underlying bill? Oh, yeah, I'll be a no. Uh, if you just look at the infrastructure bill, if we send that over as a clean vote, I'll be a no. Uh, you know, hopefully we can find a way to amend it in a way that you, you can get to yes on it. Okay. Uh, but that'd be substantial amendments. Right now, uh, if it comes over as is and we don't get to offer amendments, I'm, I'm definitely a no. Congressman Warren Davidson, Republican from Ohio. I hope you enjoy what's right? left of your August recess. Come back and talk to us when you're back in the Capitol. Look forward to it. Thank you. Now, Bloomberg has people poring over the infrastructure bill, all 2,702 pages. Well, there's a lot in there. A lot that no one's talking about. So we're going to bring items to you over the next couple of weeks you won't hear about anywhere else. The fine print. And today, it's the Hyperloop. Did you hear about this? You know, the, the futuristic transportation system that Elon Musk conceived 
and is actually developing, along with others like Virgin Hyperloop. This bill allows companies like those to compete for federal funding to create the system. It's cool stuff. As introduced a couple of years ago by Elon Musk himself, who said the idea came from sitting in god-awful traffic in L.A. Soul-destroying. It's like acid on the soul. It's horrible. We must, must go away. Um, and it's finally there's something. All right, let's try it out. How does it work? Imagine sitting in the pod here, shot at high speed through a vacuum tube. Now that we're up to speed, I'll show you around this thing. If you look to your left right now, you... Oh, we're already here. That's fast. Now just imagine as you sit in traffic right now, 30 minutes from New York to DC, that is hard infrastructure. I'm Joe Matthew, this is Bloomberg. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Roger that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. The White House wants OPEC to open the spigot. We're going to talk about this with the panel. President Biden today urging OPEC member nations to reverse the production cuts they put in place in the pandemic. Remember when no one was driving anywhere. All in an effort, he says, to make gas prices more affordable for Americans. But of course, we're not part of OPEC. And we have our own oil producers here. So Bloomberg News White House correspondent Josh Wingrove got into this with White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki today. And we bring in the panel here. Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Sheehan Zeno and Rick Davis. Rick, what is the point of the White House asking OPEC to do things differently? I know we have considered releasing supplies from the strategic reserve why why not just ask shale producers in texas to start drilling well i think you know he's looking at the what's impacting the uh gasoline prices at the at the uh, pump and i think in his mind and certainly probably what his advisors are telling him is the market manipulation by opec which always happens and and exactly what you said joe uh uh, was pretty well constrained during uh covid when nobody was going anywhere uh, and as prices have come up, especially in the summertime, it's 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 been part of what has been contributing to the inflationary uh, pressure on American families. And so he's taken his position as the guy at the kitchen table. He's gonna he's gonna be for uh, those of us who are driving our pickup trucks and our Hummers, and and he's gonna he's gonna try and get the Middle East, which has always been the 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 drum we beat when right. prices go up to uh, to try and unleash their production. I've got that question now from Josh Wingrove at the White House today. Let's listen to this exchange. You're asking OPEC to increase production. Is there anything the U.S. US producers uh, can do to increase production, or the U.S. The administration can, would, would consider doing to make U.S. more U.S. oil? Well, that that wasn't an ask we made. I, the point. I, well, that that wasn't an ask we made. I, the point. I, well, that, there's something wrong with that audio, but we'll figure that out. The point that she was making here 
is that they did not, uh, Jeannie. They're going directly to OPEC to ask for a little bit of breathing room here. Will the U.S. get it? Um, I don't know if they will get a, a lot of breathing room if they get any. And, you know, this is not a new ask on the part of the U.S., and I'm not surprised that the Biden administration has done this. We consistently do this. And to your point earlier, we also can press our own people. But, of course, the Biden administration is going to be pressing OPEC the same as administrations before them. Who knows what the outcome of that may be. We may get a little relief, but I don't know that we'll get a lot. And I'm not mm -hmm. sure that they're expecting it, but he's going to make that ask and get at the table. It's interesting, though, with all the talk of, of Delta, oil prices have actually been under pressure uh, overall in the past couple of weeks here, Rick. They seem to be taking care of themselves. Uh, is the timing off here or do you see a need for this as we go into fall and winter? Well, you know, it's interesting. I mean, everybody criticized uh, uh, Donald Trump when he was president for going after OPEC and trying to uh, do his own version of, uh, of, of, of being the head of OPEC, and, and it didn't work for him. And my guess is it's probably not going to work for this president. I mean, the one thing you do is you attach your wagon to a bunch of people who don't have our domestic political interests at heart, right? I mean, like the Saudis and the Russians and folks like that are going to act in their own self-interest economically over time. Mm -hmm. And you're, you asked the right question. Um, um, what's wrong with our own domestic capability? We actually don't buy that much from OPEC, but it does, you know, affect the price of gas. And yet, um, uh, you know, are, are we for fracking? Do we want to have our own domestic oil uh, capability? I mean, this administration is very anti-hydrocarbons, and so, you know, now we're going to try and rely on other people's uh, pollution uh, in their countries producing the oil so that we don't have to do it here. Nah, it doesn't seem like a very uh, symmetric argument. Mm -hmm. As we spend time with the panel on Bloomberg Sound On, thanks for joining us on Bloomberg Radio. I want to ask you about a tough one, uh, and that's Afghanistan. As I read on the terminal here, Afghan leader sees peace talks as dead, braces for civil war. Taliban captures six provincial capitals, sets sights on Kabul. President Ghani moving to arm citizens and cooperate with warlords. This, of course, ahead of the, the, the complete withdrawal by the end of this month of U.S. forces some 20 years later. I asked Congressman Warren Davidson, who was with us a little bit earlier this hour, about it, and I asked him that as an Army veteran, served in the 101st Airborne, and as a Republican from Ohio, supported Joe Biden's decision to withdraw forces. We talked about it with him a couple of weeks ago. I asked him again today, separate from the conversation you heard, if he still felt that way as all hell breaks loose in Afghanistan. Did it make a difference that we were there? Absolutely. In the lives of, uh, of, of Afghan people, it made a big difference. And it's disappointing to see that... Uh, they're not yet. Doesn't look like they're going to be able to unite and hold them off, um, you know, forever in parts of the country. But maybe in the core, they can, and and uh, we should certainly be willing to help them do that. But I don't think it's our war to fight. At some point, it has to become Afghanistan fights for Afghanistan. Jeannie, a Republican veteran, member of Congress, still supports Joe Biden's plan. What should the White House be doing right now to prepare for some very ugly headlines in the coming weeks? 
Well, you know, I thought Joe Biden's response to reporters, I believe it was on Tuesday when he said he was asked about this very issue. And as you know, he said, I don't regret my decision that they have to come together and fight for themselves. I think they've got to be very careful about their messaging here. And I think they've got to be very clear on what the United States is prepared to do. 60% of the nation already taken over. And as much as I understand the view of people who say the United States should leave and, and he made the right decision, there was also a real strong case to be made that had we left just a few hundred troops in there, it could have made a world of difference. And Joe Biden as president is going to have to answer for that. There is there a bloodbath and will continue to be. And while we want to say, you know, it's not our war to fight and, and they have to take care of themselves, they're in this position because we went in there. And Joe Biden is going to have to own that. So I think his messaging the other day struck me because it really did sound very, very cold to me when he made the case that it's their problem now. Rick, you know a lot about this uh, following your years advising Senator John McCain. The U.S. was conducting airstrikes today. What's this going to look like once we're gone at the end of the month? Yeah, if it unravels, uh, and it seems to be unraveling right now, um, it's going to be a horrible legacy for the U.S. adventurism in the region, right? We went there to uproot and kick out uh, the, uh, the al-Qaeda forces and destabilize uh, these, these Taliban figures who were running amok in the country and giving uh, aid and comfort to our, our sworn enemies. And, and it's like we've just swung open the door and, and invited them back in. Uh, now we've got our special envoy running around trying to create a peace plan. Well, I, why wouldn't we have had a peace plan already assigned before we left? Um, where's our leverage now? Uh, yeah, now they're going to go to Turkey. Probably the Russians are going to get involved now. I mean, so our, our strategic interests in the region are damaged with this move. Uh, you would have thought uh, President Biden would have learned from Obama's mistakes in Iraq, where we precipitously left and had to send troops back and, and increase the amount of, of blood and treasure that we spent in that country needlessly. Uh, the same people who are warning that that was a problem are the ones today standing up saying, you know, this is not the way to uh, create a legacy for our country. Uh, people will be imprisoned, uh, killed. And uh, they'll, that, that country will be run by uh, a regime that doesn't have our same uh, interests in freedom and liberty uh, for that country. And, 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 we're, and this administration is going to own it. We'll be hearing continued stories of airstrikes months from now that the U.S. had to get in there again to protect our allies. Well, I'm not sure we can actually protect our allies just with airstrikes. Well, we I mean, may not you know, be able to. I think it's a nice symbolic try. gesture. But you'll look at what's happened just this last weekend where the you know, Taliban has seized a whole re string of provincial capitals, mm -hmm. um, and that's with airstrikes. Uh, so w what's the point of that happening if we're not really willing to uh, stop the Taliban from their, their continuing uh, efforts to try and take over the whole country? And right now, I would say we're, we're, we're not making progress in that regard. Well, even if it's military theater, Jeannie, is that what we will expect to see? The Biden administration has promised to keep an eye on what's going on there, and when there are flare-ups, we'll, we'll be there. That's what they've said. But let me just give you one example. We are now in August. Joe Biden has yet to call Imran Khan 
And that is something that we're hearing over and over again. This is the neighboring country. This is Pakistan. This is a nuclear country. And there is yet to be a phone call. To Rick's point, why do we get out without a peace plan in place and then struggle and send an envoy around trying to do it in the aftermath? And it's not just Turkey they're going to look at. They're going to look at Saudi Arabia. But let's not forget, as Janet Yellen potentially heads over to China, China is also right there to step in. So we have opened up a world there. And I'm surprised that this is not on the top of the Biden administration's agenda. At the very least, a call to Imran Khan should have taken place in my book. And that has yet to happen. I have to admit, I'm also surprised at the lack of coverage this has received uh, in, I, God forbid, refer to the mainstream media. But uh, just wait for those couple of days before the end of the month. And you'll see cameras rolling with the convoys once again toward the border. We'll talk about that with Jeannie and Rick when it happens. And we'll meet you back here tomorrow. See, it's the fastest hour in politics. Bloomberg Sound On. I'm Joe Matthew. Thanks for being with us. Meet you for the Thursday edition on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch stratacoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-size companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com.